Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. Good morning. Uh, so we are going to go a little throwback this morning. Uh, my guess is that if you were to go back and think of what is the earliest Bible lesson you can recall being taught as a child, if you grew up in the church, what would be one of the earliest you can recall? My guess that today's text might be one of them. I mean, how many of you recognize this little tune? The wise man built his... There you go. All right, you don't have to go any further. You know, is that still being taught? Anybody under the age of 20 actually have knew that song? Okay, there's a handful of you. Good, good. So that means it's still being taught. It's still in the Bible, by the way. Uh, so, but... In this particular little song, I remember as a child, age probably around four, where me, you know, a small church, about 90 people, and we would, like in children's church, sing that song, and us four-year-old boys do what four-year-old boys do. When you get to that part where the foolish man built his house upon the sand, and the rains came down, and then it, what, it goes splat at the end. And, and what we would do is we would say the word, but we'd like crash into each other. And that's what four-year-old boys do. And then four-year-old boys crashing into each other end up incidentally running into the girls, and the girls didn't like it. Thus beginning the discord that is between male and female. It just starts at a young age that, that happens between us. But... You know, I, I remember those songs being sung, things like that very well. I remember the teacher teaching it. I remember the flannel graphs as part of it. I remember the images that we'd say, that we would do. We would talk about uh, specific examples from that text. I remember this text like I don't even remember hardly the beginning of it. It has been taught to me ever since. So as a result, it is probably... The reason why it is taught to us so young is because it is the most simplistic lesson that you can teach. So if you came here this morning hoping to walk away with new information that fancies your academic intellect, I am sorry to disappoint you. I'm going to stick to the simplicity that Jesus gave. Because I believe that with simplicity, there's clarity. And with clarity, we have a clear sense of direction. And this is the end of his Sermon on the Mount, the series that we've called Bonafide, uh, Confronting Superficial Faith. Because we know that the standard of Jesus' time, that faith was built on a lot of constructs that was very superficial, very evident. It was more about impressing other people with what we do and how we behave rather than having a sincere, authentic faith that was bent towards God and trusting in his work in our lives. And so this entire sermon has been preached to that end, and it concludes with Jesus' thoughts on what it means to listen and apply. And so we're not going to stray far from that. Uh, we're going to stay with the simplistic idea, but I believe that it, the regards to whether or not this fulfilled in your life can depend whether or not you stand or you fall when storms come. And so as you now turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, we will go to this text that's at the end in verse 24. Before we begin, I want to just acknowledge the primary tenets of this ending. You have two people, one's foolish, one's wise. 
They both built houses. So we can relate to that being in Lancaster County. A lot of home builders here. And they both built houses. One built on a rock. One built on sand. One is receiving strength. One is thinking they're strong. But in both cases, a storm of life comes. And the example, while it might be very factual, concrete in this case, it's actually an analogy to that which is human and heart. And so we're going to go there reading with that understanding. Beginning in verse 24, would you join? It says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had the foundation on a rock. But this, but everyone who hears these words of mine and does the, not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rains came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell with a great crash. Let me pray. So God, my guess is, is all of us fall into one or the other category. All of us came in this room probably thinking that we're pretty secure where we stand. But some of us have foolishly built. Some of us have been more wise in the way we built. This isn't about comparison to each other. But it's about learning from life storms where to stand. So I ask that in this time, you will, by your Holy Spirit, reveal the truth of our foundations. And that you will also reveal the beauty of you, Jesus. That not only in the way you taught and the words you taught, but the way you lived. As a model, as a teacher to life and life to the full. True faith that God loves and blesses and rewards. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. To lean in a little bit about this text, storms do come. They are the great tester as to reveal that from which is within. Where are you truly standing? I, well, you know, I was honest with you two weeks ago. My wife and I sat up here. We shared how a portion of our life was not in a good place in the way we handled our finances and the way we approached the cares and concerns for our children. And as a result, when the storm came, it revealed our foundation. It revealed that we were on sand. And as a result, my wife went into a season where it undid her physically and emotionally. And then for me, realizing that I had failed in many ways, there was embarrassment, so I tried to cover it over and gloss it over. But the reality is, is we were in trouble. The storm of life that came revealed we were not standing in good places in those areas of our life. We were standing strong in so many other areas, but in that area... Not so much. We've kind of convinced ourselves that we've been taught well. That we understood well how to guide these things. After all, we do give sacrificially of our lives. So the way we handle our money doesn't seem to be any problem. God will understand. Or our children, we've dedicated them. We've taught them about Jesus. But to entrust them to Jesus... Again, that was a whole nother thing. But the storm revealed it. But as time goes on, those storms teach us. They teach us where our foundations actually are so that we can begin to stand better in those areas. And as time showed on, as we shared in our story, that when a more serious uh, storm came, it revealed that we were in a better place and we had peace as the, as the cause rather than chaos. Something that I haven't talked a whole lot about that was more of a personal test to me was about three years ago in 2018, coming off my sabbatical. Some of you might recall that I came back only to have to have surgery. 
I had developed something wrong with my speaking voice. I was raspy. It sounded like I had been a chain smoker for 30 years. I could hardly speak. Went to the doctor, a specialist, and they said there's a growth on your vocal cords. They don't think it's anything, but it could be cancer. And on top of that, they made the comment that we'll remove it and we'll test it, but we cannot promise that you'll have a voice when you come out of surgery. We cannot promise that if you do have a voice that it will sound the same as what you have now. And so I'm going into that surgery knowing that my voice is probably my most important muscle. To say that there was concern or stress would be putting it lightly. It was a test. It was a test of storm. I went into that surgery room The doctors are standing over me. They're about ready to knock me out. And my concern in that moment was not to say something stupid before I went under. They give you that little funny stuff before, and it's a, I just talk like a, I mean, talk incessantly when they give me that stuff. And then I remember what I said later, which is so embarrassing. So I'm focused in on like not saying anything that I would regret. But then the reality of when they're about to put me under, realizing this could be. My final word. So I'm thinking, what is going to be the last thing I say with my mouth? Doctors are standing over me. Nurses are running around. And they say, okay, you're going to feel a warm sensation. And I said, I trust you, Jesus, that you'll guide those around me to do well in this surgery. The person that was putting the shot in said, amen. I woke up and I'm told I can't talk for seven days, so I have no idea. If I'm, if I'm able to speak. I don't even remember what happened. But something happened in the house where it respond, it's a typical father moment where you just speak. And I think it was between my daughter and my dog. And I was like, oh, watch out. And I'm like, my eyes lit open. It's like, I have a voice. And then my wife turned around like, you have a voice, but you're not supposed to speak. But what a moment. When you go through a storm of life that is unexpected, it does test you as to what do you truly believe? Where do you find your security when everything else is gone? That's what storms do. They reveal a lot. You know, growing up, when you talk about storms, I, I've talked about before the joy of watching across the plains, the storms building up and their big thunderheads in the west as they're coming off the Rocky Mountains and coming into the plains. We would enjoy watching the storms come in. What was also true is that when the tornado sirens would go off and you'd go to your basement, you would hunker down for whatever length of time until the sirens stop because they go the entire time of the storm. But when it would stop, those sirens, immediately the natural response of everybody in my hometown would be to turn on the radio and see where the tornado actually touched down. And then there was often a scurrying of vehicles. You would think it was the Schuylkill Expressway as cars would drive to where that tornado had touched down to see what the damage would be. I have so many memories of going and seeing tornado-torn areas and being impressed by the power and magnitude of those storms. But what was often fascinating was to see what withstood the powerful storm. One tornado in particular stood out to me. It was a tornado that went through the suburbs of Kansas City. We were living in that, t- in that during my kindergarten year. 
So we drove out to where the storm had hit a subdivision. We went out there. All these houses were like demolished and were gone. But what I remember to this day was I saw a house that was completely gone with the exception of a spiral staircase and a stove with a carton of milk and a carton of eggs sitting open intact. And just being mesmerized as a five-year-old that this powerful storm that took away the entire house, that eggs and milk were still ready for breakfast. Fascinating how this happens. And so I'm always fascinated by how what is left after a storm is to see what withstands. I found this picture online. It's a, it's a, a, a house in Tennessee. You can see the path of the tornado going off into the horizon. And then you can see the house that remains in that path. Everything else gone, but the house stood. And some of you that are builders in the room is like, yeah, that's the house I built. <laughs> well, that's what my houses would do. I mean, it's amazing, fascinating, that complete carnage, but that house stood. Jesus, like an illustration that he's giving here, isn't talking about physical structures like that. He's talking about human beings. When they go through the storm, what do they come out of the storm looking like, being like? I'm a person that loves to read history, and I'm always impressed by people that have gone through severe storms and come out of it being strong and steady. One person that I've always admired, now not necessarily agree with all of his politics, but I've always admired him for all that he withstood while as a prisoner of war in Vietnam. His name is John McCain. Seven years as a fighter pilot that was shot down and over Vietnam for seven years, he was in a prisoner of war camp, tortured many times. So much so that his body was never going to be the same. Now, a lot of people that go through such torture come out of it emotionally scarred, angry, bitter, often thinking that they were forgotten by their country. But what made John McCain heard by both the left and the right side was that when put through the pressure cooker of life, what came out of him was beautiful. He was still a strong man. He was not embittered. He was a leader, and when he spoke, people listened. That's why he rose to some of the highest ranks in our government. Is because when you, you knew that when things were truly on the line, where such a man would stand. Now, I have no idea about his faith, but he certainly had faith in his country, and he stood strong. How about people of faith? when put through the pressure cookers of life, or when things get so serious and, 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 and can come in on you where you begin to implode emotionally, spiritually, physically. Consider these three people. Elizabeth Elliot, Corey Ten Boom, Nick Vojacek. Now, many of you are familiar with maybe Elizabeth Elliot, who is the wife of one of the five missionaries that were killed in 1956 in Ecuador while trying to re reach a remote tribe who had never heard the name Jesus. They were bringing in the gospel by plane and they landed and, and tried to con make connections with this tribe and things seemed to be going well as they were just starting to be able to explain about the gospel. And then tragedy, tragedy struck. They were, did not arrive back home. A rescue party was formed and they discovered that all five of the missionaries were dead. They left behind wives and children. Imagine you're Elizabeth Elliot. You know that your husband just days before was saying, it's so exciting, we're so close to being able to tell them about Jesus, a tribe that's never heard of him. And then a couple days later, he's not even around. Imagine the disconnect with, that could be there between her and God. 
He was serving you, God. He was bringing the gospel. Why now would you take him and all the others? She had every right to be bitter, angry, despondent, and give up on her faith. But the reason why Elizabeth Elliot was able to speak to audiences like myself when I was in college, and there's 2,000 people in a room, and there's this 80-year-old woman speaking to us, and you could hear a pin drop. We knew that we were in the presence of somebody who had been proven to be true. There was no falsehood. She had respect. Because in spite of what story God had dealt to her, she never became embittered towards God. Corey Tim Boom's story is fairly similar. She and her family in the Netherlands during the time of World War II began to hide Jewish people in their homes. They themselves were not Jewish, they were Dutch, but they were helping those Jews be able to escape Nazism and to escape for their lives. Eventually, the Gestapo found out about what they were doing and her family joined the Jews in that concentration camp. Her entire family were killed. Now for her, she could look at God and say, God, we were trying to protect your people that bear your name. Yet you took my family. The reality is, she did not become embittered. In fact, she joined in the message of the gospel. And she spoke before countless people. Why was she given audience? Because she was proven to be true. The real deal. The test of the storm had proven that which was reality in her life. These two women I respect and regard. But could you imagine if life dealt you the storm blow from your birth? Nick Wojcik was born without arms and legs. Ridiculed as a child, as a freak. Gets laughs and scares from people as they see him in the store. Hearing children ask their moms, why does he look that way? having children cry as soon as they see him because they fear him. Imagine how scarred you would be if you were him. Yet I've never sat in a room with Nick Wojcik. I've never met him. But I've heard and watched his videos and I find him to be one of the most inspiring, joyful men I've ever heard and listened to. He is not beaten down by his disabilities. But he sees it as an opportunity to glorify his God who created him that way. You see, the storms of life reveal the true character of a person's soul. Nick was so praised that just a few years ago, 60 Minutes did an entire episode on him. Why would you do that? So that people can see some freak without arms and legs? Or was it that there was something unique about this disabled person? Where there was a joy that they wanted to try to get to the root of. Why, try to make sense of why this person is the way they are. It's the latter. They're enamored. They're curious. How is it that you have hope? When life has dealt you the worst blow. And why would you be okay with God who clearly created you to be the way you are? Storms of life test the true metal of the soul. That's why the foolish person it's talked about in verse 26 where it says, But everyone who hears the words of mine, Jesus speaking, but does not do them and practice them, is like a foolish person who built their house on a sand. When the storms came, of course, the house fell apart. My guess is the majority in this room have faced a storm. Something has crushed your heart. Something has rattled you. What did the storm reveal? 
Did it reveal that you were standing on ground that was shaky? And that really it, your life imploded? Or did it reveal that while difficult, still concerning, did it reveal that you were standing in a good place? For the foolish person, it reveals a pattern of life that is a recipe for falling apart. That recipe begins with this idea that we disregard Jesus in our daily living. Many of you have grown up in the church. You've been taught about Jesus. You've been taught Jesus' teachings. You know everything about Jesus that you could possibly be known, so you think. But yet, you do not connect the dots that Jesus is the very template of living that God gave us so that we would know how to live as he intends. That we've disregarded the idea that the teachings he has is relevant for not only the time of Jesus, but now. Part of that disregard is rooted in the idea, it's like, I've got enough. I think I can take it from here. I've got this. It's that pride that thinks that I've been taught enough to know what to do. Some of us see the challenges that come and we begin to say, it's just too difficult to live Jesus' way. It's not worth it to sacrifice my own leverage as being the one in control. We think we know better than Jesus. We'll take it from here. Some of us are just simply lazy. It's an aloof approach to life where we apply our faith only when it's convenient. Whether you're disregarding, dismissing, or you're simply aloof. Storms do come. And then it will reveal just how strong your ankles actually are. The storm will reveal whether or not your faith actually is an authentic faith. Do you truly know Jesus for who Jesus says he is? And as a result of foolish living... We don't like what we've received and we become embittered as if Jesus is the cause of it. We begin to blame him or we're horrified because we realize we are vulnerable because we're not standing where God would likely protect. I think that was the alarming thing when God was revealing in my storms when I wasn't in the right place. I had to plead for mercy because I knew where I was at. I was not worthy of God's grace. As if grace was something I could even be worthy of. Even with small areas of our life, if we withhold aspects of our life from Jesus' leadership, his modeling, and his teaching. A storm will reveal just how weak of a foundation you have in that area. God is a jealous God. He doesn't like parts of you. He likes and wants all of us. Which is why when Jesus not only mentions in the analogy about the foolish man, he, he begins with the strong one, the wise one, as being the one who puts the words that he has taught into practice. And when the storms come, it says they will be standing at the end of the storm because their life was built on the rock of whom he is that rock. You see, there's, as there's a recipe for disaster, when we dismiss and disregard Jesus from our daily living, there is also a path of which we can then find strength when storms do come. And it begins very simply with listening to Jesus and applying what we learn. Listening is not just with the ears, it's with the eyes. Now hear me out on this. 
The Gospels are not just the teachings of Christ. It's the life of Christ. And if we can see how he lived and see things through his eyes, we will then be informed in our mind not only his words, but his heart. So if we listen and apply, we'll find that our life will begin to show life. Our faith will become vibrant. James brings this up. He says in James chapter 2, that in the same way, faith by itself, is, if not accompanied by action, will be dead. So we're talking about confronting superficial faith. At the crux of that, that phrase is a faith that would say, Jesus' ideas for living just don't get 21st century. Jesus' way of teaching, especially about a lot of agricultural things, just doesn't apply to me. And Jesus being the son of God, there's no way his life is something I can even adhere to. But yet, if we don't apply Jesus, and we don't apply not only his life and his words, but also his directives, our faith will grow to be dead. In fact, an applied faith will lead to a deeper, intimate knowledge of Jesus. If we don't apply what Jesus has taught us, we don't apply what he has modeled for us, then we're going to become strangers to Jesus. I have found during this season of the last 15 months that as the church became separated, that our understanding of Jesus began to grow apart because when we're separated as a church, we're left to our own extremes because there's nobody speaking into us and being able to cautiously and graciously say, you know, maybe it's a little bit different than what you see it as. As time has gone on, more and more people have come back to church. It was Jesus that said we need to be able to be in each other's lives. We need to be able to show love to, G to other people. In fact, we're commanded to this. says you'll be known by your love. How can we do that if we stay home and we stop living? That's why when we are turning the page right now in society, we're also turning a page in the church. This is my invitation to those who have found it increasingly more difficult to return to church. It's time to come home. We want you here. Not because we want to have seats filled. There are plenty of people coming. We want you to come home for your sake. And for our sake. We're better together. Jesus modeled that. He didn't isolate and just stay on a stage or on top of a hillside. He got among the people and he charged his disciples to live among the people. How can we know Jesus and have a faith that thrives if we're not applying what Jesus modeled and what Jesus taught? The church will grow weaker if we separate and we isolate. And then you'll discover yourselves to have numbed out and maybe even worse yet, for Jesus to be a stranger to you. Consider what John said in 1 John chapter 2. It'll be on the screen. We know, we can know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know that we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. It's not separating there, is it? 
It goes hand in hand. As James says, a faith is dead unless there is an applied faith. But we can't even have faith at all if we don't know Jesus. And, if, and how can we claim we know Jesus if we're not applying Jesus' way of living to our lives? John's saying, how can we claim to know him if we do not keep these commands and do what he says? He even uses the strong term liar if you claim to know Jesus, but there is nothing applied in your life. Paul says something similar in Philippians chapter three. He says, what is more, I consider everything a loss for what? For the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I've lost all things. I consider all these other things garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Paul came down to this reality that there is nothing greater. There is nothing greater than to pursue Jesus. Everything else is garbage. So the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus was the greatest value that Paul could ever find. And how do you know Jesus unless you study his life and you apply it? Peter joins his peers in saying something similar in 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness. So an applied faith. And to that goodness, knowledge. And as you're doing the good things of God in that applied faith, your knowledge is going to grow. And then to that knowledge, then self-control. And to self-control, perseverance. And to perseverance, godliness. To godliness, mutual affection. And to mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from what? From being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Peter calls it out. That a maturing person, a person that's growing in their faith and, and, and knowing Jesus... It is going to be a case where applied faith is going to increase us in knowledge. Because if you do not possess these qualities in a growing manner, you will become ineffective and unproductive in what you know about Jesus. You'll misconstrue him. You'll cause discord with other people because you're giving such a disoriented picture of who Jesus is. Jesus is clear. He is steadfast. He does not muddy the waters. His character is strong. It's only when we choose to compartmentalize our lives that we give a distorted view of Jesus. So Jesus begins all of this saying, wise man is the one who builds their health on a rock by applying what they have heard from me and putting them into practice. So he says this at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. So it behooves us to then relook at the high points of the Sermon of the Mount. And it begins with Matthew chapter 5 with the Beatitudes. Keeping in mind that Jesus is confronting the superficial faith that the religious constructs of their day had built. And he's saying it really begins. The person I affirm, the person I bless, the person I call my friend, the one that is truly walking with God is the one who begins with the spirit of, I need God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the ones who are meek. Blessed are the ones who are merciful. Blessed are the ones who humble themselves before God and recognize I need him. Blessed is the one who hungers for me, for they will be filled. And the one who is hungering for me and being filled will become peacemakers. And when you're becoming a peacemaker, the world's not going to like it. They don't want to be shown that their lives are pretty self-centered. 
Because when we live the way Jesus lives, it becomes convicting for those around. And so Jesus concludes the sermon that the Beatitudes was saying, and blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake. So Jesus says, it begins with a humble heart, acknowledging that your attempt to impress God will fall short. You need the righteousness that only Jesus can provide. And that as Jesus is working in you deeply that gospel, as you look at his life, as you see how he's living and what he is teaching, if you apply those beatitudes in your life, you'll become more and more like him. Which is why then for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, in the big middle portion of it, he is regularly speaking to, it's not about the outward expressions of the law, but rather what is the motivation of your heart? Because God looks at the heart. And when you, he looks at the heart, he is looking to see, do you trust my son Jesus? Because he is the exclusive path of what we've looked at at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He is that path, the one way to God the Father. He is that gate by which only through him you can enter and have relationship with God the Father. These are the things that are taught. And the more you're applying the truths of Scripture that are found in Jesus' life and in his Gospels and his teaching, you'll discover that Jesus is truly the way, the truth, and the life. And when you know him that intimately, guess what's going to happen? Then what is also said in these, these texts is that you'll become the salt and light of the world. Therefore, if you apply what you have heard, you will discover that Jesus is indeed the source of all life and that by his life we can live. So therefore, embrace the opportunity to be the salt and light that the world needs. They need to see Jesus. And the only way they're gonna see Jesus in you and I is if you will begin to lean in and look at his life, model it after him, and then apply his teachings and you'll discover that you're knowing him more and more. And by that knowledge, you'll become productive and effective for his cause. Let's pray. Jesus, I recognize that this is about as simple of a message as I could possibly preach. Bottom line, we're foolish if we think we've got it on our own. We're foolish if we disregard your life patterns for our life patterns. We're foolish if our lives begin to look more and more like the world and we just occasionally say a prayer in Jesus' name. We're foolish. And that'll get exposed by a storm that could come very soon. But Lord, you also said that it's wise when we live according to your ways and that we'll discover life and that when the storms come, we'll find that there's a strange sense of hope and peace. And that'll be a testament to your work. But it'll also be a testament to those who need to see through the storms that there is a God whose love is manifested through his son Jesus and that he will rescue us from the worst of storms. So Lord, do your work now in revealing that which our, our feet are anchored on. If we're standing on sand, would you expose that in our hearts? If it's just a part of our lives that are standing on sand, would you reveal that, Lord, so that it wouldn't take a storm to reveal? And Lord, if there's somebody here in this room that's, and probably many, going through a difficult day or weeks or season of time, would you help them anchor back on the steadfast rock of Jesus Christ? I pray this in that powerful name. Amen. Would you stand, please?
is with us. Fear not. Fear not, he is with us. Oh, be not dismayed, for he is our God, our sustainer and strength. He'll be our defender and cause us to stand upheld by his mercy. it matters that we're talking about Jesus. You see, Jesus is the Son of God. He was with God from the whole beginning. He's always been with God. And together they created the universe, of which in that universe was mankind. And mankind was created specifically in the image of God, made to be in likeness to them. And that likeness was also to create a relationship created for perfection and ongoing relationship that was not to be hindered. And when sin entered the world, God had a a decision to make. His decision was this, either I can annihilate them and start over, or I can save them and bring them back in relationship with me. And that's what he chose. He chose to save them. But the only way that could happen is if a perfect sacrifice could come, a perfect lamb. And so he sent his son Jesus to live on this earth as the perfect one, never creating error as the first Adam did. Instead, he he lived perfectly, went to that cross as a perfect man, died a death that was not due him, and then came alive on the third day to give life to all who by faith would receive that act as their own. That it was sufficient for us. So by grace, And through faith, we trust in the work of Jesus to be enough to reconcile us between 
our sins to a perfect father. And Jesus is that bridge. And so by being that bridge, he now stands at the right hand of God, advocating on our behalf to guide us into a life that is filled with purpose and living, which is why you can go through a storm with a strange sense of peace and hope and confidence when you're walking with Jesus. And that why so many people, when it was very difficult in life, they come out of it the other end a mess. It's because their anchor wasn't in the solid rock of Jesus Christ. So we invite you into a relationship with him to call out to him as a, as a sinner in need of saving, saying, God, forgive me of what I've done. Jesus, I trust in the work you've done on my behalf. Now save me and make me that person that has hope in the midst of my storm. If you would like to make that decision, you can do so right now, but we would love to talk to you and introduce you to Jesus. I'll be up front. We'd be glad to talk to you. There'll be people in the encounter room, which is to my left in the back side of the room. But to all of you who are followers of Jesus and have known him for a long time, don't dismiss the teachings and life of Jesus. Don't be exposed for having compartmentalized your life because God is a jealous God and God loves you enough that he will bring the storms so that you will get your feet planted in the right places. I would rather be taught without a storm. How about you? So let's apply the teachings of Jesus so that we can know him more intimately because we've experienced him in the way we live. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You are dismissed.